And she said to me, never be ashamed of what you do to survive. And then I, she probably followed up with also stop doing that. But, but uh. more wiser podcast, Karen Faith, ethnographer. So you talk a lot about unconditional welcome. And I'm curious if we hopped in a time machine and went back to the Stone Age, do you think we'd see Caveman Larry judging other people for not using fire or their toga choice? Or is this more of a recent advancement that we're so quick to judge? Is it like an evolutionary response, do you think? Oh, I mean, my my gut impulse is to say, I think absolutely the cavemen were judging each other. Um, I mean, that's part of, I mean, that you bring up evolution. E- evolution is, let's say that, you know, the survival of the fittest is a, is a, is a good rule. Well, a rule, whether it's good or not. And that involves shutting out weakness. It involves, you know, if something's not strong and not working, then we don't want to repeat that. We don't want to emulate that. We don't want to, we don't want that to carry forward. So of course there's a constant evaluation. Now, I think that evaluation is different than judgment, which is also different than discernment. And so this is something I do want to talk about because, um, oh, they're like, my thoughts are making a traffic jam. All of them want out of my mouth at the same time. But I'll tell you that, um, first of all, I want to talk about the evolutionary response. And then also I want to talk about the difference between judgment and discernment. So first I'll start with judgment and discernment. A lot of times when I talk to people about non-judgment, their immediate response is to say, but some things are bad. Some people are bad, you know? And, and even though I don't personally believe that any, anyone is bad, I understand what they're trying to say is, you know, what about serial killers or whatever? And, and of course, you know, there, there are behaviors that are destructive, but more importantly, I think it's, I have to remind people that non-judgment is not a state we should be living in at all times. Non-judgment is a practice that we should employ to certain situations temporarily in order to learn. You know, it's like, it's basically a mindset that we have to cultivate in order to do research in order to learn about people, in order to receive other people, and to cultivate some kind of awareness of compassion and loving kindness and those kinds of things. But after you have done your research and you have learned and you have really put yourself in another person's shoes, it is absolutely okay to say, after this knowledge, I can fully and more more knowingly reject you. (laughs) I can more, because it's important sometimes. It's important for our safety. It's important just to maintain boundaries. And of course, to, you know, to keep others safe as well. We do have to, we do have to say no to some things, which sometimes means to say no to some people. That's, um, that's important. But when I talked about that with a teacher of mine, she said, what you're describing is discernment, not judgment. And she was like, judgment is the, is the, moral or um, is to deem someone less worthy of love or morally wrong. Um, and that that is that judgment is not good. And so, you know, we could kind of get into semantics on what all those things mean. But in general, I just think non-judgment is a practice, not a virtue. So it's important to, through an objective lens, determine 
is this person someone I like or do they have behaviors and tendencies that I don't agree with? But doing it before you understand them, is that what you're saying, that that's the issue? Right. Yeah. I mean, I I watched the Netflix series on Ted Bundy because I was curious about him. And after I learned more about his life and um, I understood a little bit more and I still have no compassion for him. None. Zero. Sure. And I, <laughs> yeah, like there's no, I'm not like, oh, I get it now. Like I, st- <laughs> I don't get it. So, um, but I'm glad that I know a little bit more. And I've heard you say psychopaths can have empathy, which caught me off guard. You said that on a podcast once. And I immediately thought, you know, if I've got frozen limbs in the freezer, I'm not sure how much empathy I would have towards other humans. Or is there the disconnect between my actions and what I'm perceiving that person's feeling? There are really different. There are three different kinds of empathy, and they're very different from one another. So the empathy that you're talking about is effective empathy. That's the caring, the golden rule, giving a shit about how I impact you, think, having compassion, feeling, you know, feeling sad when you're sad, feeling happy when you're happy. Like this is a, that, that feelings-based effective empathy. And that's a nice thing, but, um, and that's the one when some people say this person has no empathy, that's what usually they're referring to. This person has no like tenderness toward others or or doesn't value the impact of their actions on other people. Um, that's effective empathy. Somatic empathy is the physical embodiment of another person's suffering. It's usually always suffering, but it also can happen with joy as well. But it's when you are when someone else's feelings are contagious in a very literal way. Now that's actually pretty rare. I, I call it sci-fi empathy because it we see it a lot in Star Star Trek and X-Files. Okay. But but it's very rare. It does exist. Um, it does happen, but it's not, I don't find it useful. I mean, it it can be an interesting experience, but if if you're incapacitated by pain and now I'm incapacitated by pain, then who's going to do the helping? You know, it's like, like there's not a lot I can do if I'm suffering just like you are. So um, also it's very hard to teach. Um, It's not impossible, but it's, I mean, it's a whole another conversation, but cognitive empathy is what I'm talking about. Cognitive empathy is the kind of research practice of putting yourself in another person's shoes, seeing things from their point of view, learning about their world, coming to understand everything that you can about what they're experiencing from an, an intellectual point of view or a cognitive point of view, not necessarily intellectual. And cognitively, you may, you may still not have any emotions about this experience. And the reason, so the reason why I can say that so, sociopaths and psychopaths can have empathy is because um, skillful manipulation requires that I understand what you fear, what you believe, what you value. Uh, okay. I need to know what's going to make you trust me. And so I'm going to get inside your head. I'm going to get inside your head and I'm going to know, um, you know, this is how the, I can get in there with you. And that involves cognitive empathy. That's cognitive empathy. So you can use cognitive empathy for good or evil, but um, <laughs> but it is still useful. The reason I like to teach that, though, over more kind of softer emotional practices is because for many different kinds of minds, I mean, not just uh, neurodivergent minds, but just different kinds of personalities, um, that kind of soft emotion isn't always very accessible. You know, a lot of people 
don't necessarily feel like that's the door that they can enter through. Now, when we, when we walk them through the cognitive door, then those emotional things can start to open up. Sometimes, sometimes not. It feels like we're missing cognitive empathy right now as a whole in the United States because oh, yeah. we're so quick to judge and, and specifically in politics. And I don't want to steer oh, us into politics okay. exactly, but the, the, the rhetoric is just vile either side of the aisle that you're on. And it's almost impossible to listen to um, a coherent conversation of actual ideas because it so quickly turns to judgment or I mean, sometimes even the manipulation that you're talking about that psychopaths have, you hear that and it's constantly blasted at us all the time. Yeah. Well, I guess, how do we get back to a place where we can have actual true debates without hating the other person? I love this question. Um, I, I haven't solved it, just a spoiler. I'm not going <laughs> to tell you the answer, but, um, but I'll tell you that, you know, I've had a lot of very, very beautiful experiences connecting with people whose politics are different from mine. And um, I encourage everyone to have those experiences. I, uh, I, I'm from Mississippi. I'm from the rural South. Most of my people are, um, are conservative, Christian. Um, many of them are Trump supporters. Um, I do not happen to belong to any of those categories myself. Um, and, and I, you know, I, and I live in a very, I live in a very liberal community. And so I, um, I can forget that I can, for, I can forget how things sound and feel to other people. And I guess I, so my brother and sister-in-law um, drove up from Mississippi to see my Ted talk. Oh, cool. And it was really, really special. It was really, really special. Um, for a lot of reasons, but I'll tell you that one of the most profound things to me was that after my talk, my sister-in-law said to me, I liked your talk because it was the only one that was nonpartisan. Oh. And I, I kind of, I kind of had to like rewind through the other talk topics because all of them were, I mean, a lot of leftists would find them politically neutral or just you know, um, common sense, you know, we're talking about climate change, we're talking about um, respecting the environment, we're talking about education and freedom of speech or whatever. And, um, but for someone who hears about those topics in a, in a conservative community, or in a Republican community, or in a religious community, the way that they talk about those topics, the language they use and the point of view that they come from is entirely different. And so, hearing about those same topics, like we all agree on freedom. We all agree that we don't want the planet to explode. We all agree that education is important, but the way that we achieve those things is very different. Right. So, so it was super interesting to just talk, kind of unpack that with her and, and to recognize that we share all of the most important values. My sister-in-law and my brother and I um, we don't disagree on anything that's actually important when you get down to it. How we achieve those things um, and what um, our opinions about some of our political leaders or even, you know, celebrity figures or other kinds of commentators in the world, our opinions about those people are very, very different because they're shaped by the channels that they come through. 
And so a lot of that has to do with, you know, social media and yeah, blah, blah. but, um, but so I just encourage people to, to connect with folks at that really deep soul level of what really matters, you know, because we all value family. We all value love. We all value freedom. We all value free speech. We all, you know, it's like, we all value safety. We all value health. Um, those are all important to everybody. I don't know anybody that doesn't value those things. Why are we so scared though, to hear opinions that don't match ours? It's almost like we view them as contagious. It's, it's, Whenever I have a conversation with someone, I can I can tell when we've steered the wrong way when their volume picks up because there's two ways to win a debate, right? Either through logic or you just suppress the other person's volume so they can't talk anymore. And we're so scared to hear opinions that don't match ours. I have to imagine it's tied to our levels of empathy or can they be separated? Can you be highly intellectual and have those conversations but have low levels of empathy? Okay, two things. One is going to go back to one of the first two things that I hadn't gotten back to yet, which is about evolutionary biology. You're talking about why can't we have these, like what, where is that impulse? Why can't we hear something that's different? And I really believe that this is the product of a very primal evolutionary need to have a community in which we belong. Um, to get it back to the cavemen, if you were rejected by your community, you would die period. It was life or death that you needed to belong in the community. And, and so any kind of deviation from what the community deemed as normal and healthy and supportive or whatever it was that they thought was best, um, any deviation from that would get you killed. And, and so I do think that there's like an evolutionary response of, of this kind of, I'm, I'm losing the word, but it's the, it's the primal survival uh, sense of belonging. And, and so just to, to bring that back to what we're talking about with the cavemen and judgment, I recently had a really special conversation um, with Dr. Richard Schwartz, which I do want to talk to you about. But one of the things he told me about was that he had worked with, we were talking about the concept of there being no bad parts, that nobody has, that all the parts of yourself are not bad. They're just parts. They're parts that have needs and feelings and all these things. And um and that he's like, you know, people have challenged me on this. And, you know, when I was working with, he worked with people who had been sexually abusive to children. And most everyone I know, myself included, has has long considered this group of people the worst people in the world. You know, they're like, they're the most unfathomable, terrible people in the world. How, yes, how could anybody? It's so awful. And like, and there's no punishment that's strong enough for them. And like, they should, like, people love to have uh, torture fantasies about this group of people. And um, I've heard much of it and participated in it on many occasions. Um, and he was telling me, you know, I was working with these um, people who were like, what about the part of me who hurts children? Isn't that part of me bad? And when they examined that part and spoke to that part, what they recognized is that in 100% of the cases, that part had also been abused, usually in that same way. And that that part during the abuse circumstance has no power. That part is helpless and powerless. And so that part looks for where the power is and finds the abuser is the one who has the power. And so in order to become powerful, the person emulates the powerful behavior of the abuser. Now, this mechanism 
and this, these are my words, not Dr. Schwartz's, but this mechanism of finding what is powerful and emulating it is an evolutionary mechanism. That's how we grow. That's how we become stronger. That's how we, you know, survive. The, the fittest survive by taking the strongest traits, emulating them and carrying them forward. Now, what happened was something got distorted along the way. And I don't know exactly when or how that happened, but it got distorted along the way. And so then the traits that are being emulated are, are no longer um, constructive, but they're destructive. So it's not morally bad. The, the evolutionary mechanism to be stronger is not morally bad. It is corrupted by this distortion. And that's why this has happened. But if we regard, if we regard this, the behavior is bad. The behavior is morally reprehensible, but morality only exists in behavior. Morality doesn't exist in the, in, in, in the essence of self. You know, a behavior can be bad. A person is not bad. So in the same way that this mechanism is not bad, I think that the mechanism to, to kind of distance yourself from something that feels like it threatens your place in the community. Like if I, if I agree with this idea, my people might reject me. You know, the people who I think are my people might reject me. Now, um, all of that is a lot, but I also want to say that I'm not, um, these are my, these are my personal opinions, but, but I, I'm not sure that the evolutionary mechanism is useful to us anymore. Really? Well, look at what's happened. And also, um, you know, capitalism is a survival of the fittest mechanism and look what has, what, look where it is. You know, it's sort of like when we, when we just go for what's stronger, what's bigger growth for growth's sake, a lot of destructive things happen. Um, we have we have evolved to a point where we no longer, I mean, we no longer need to only follow our urges or our or or this kind of mechanism for growth. I think we can make choices. The fact that we're able to to make choices that are against our nature, to make choices that are against our impulses. That's, I mean, that's what it means to be a civilized society, isn't it? So, you're saying people are inherently good or neutral then because if they're not inherently bad are they they're not inherently good are are people just people and we're subject to 50,000 generations before us you know what i really believe as me karen faith is not necessarily i'm not sure it's what i should be teaching <laughs> i think that i think that it's good to teach people that people are good and to look for the good in people i don't personally believe that um good and bad are useful evaluations. Like they're um, good and bad are completely subjective. And so they're not reliable tools for measurement. I believe we can find the good in people and there's always good to be found in people. Um, but what good is and what defines good, um, I mean, that depends on what your aim is. You know, is if the aim is to grow, um, well, and it's also like, does grow mean bigger or stronger or more or longer or, you know, what does it mean? But, you know, what good means depends on what you're aiming at. And so it's like, I don't, it's not my place to ever say that something is good or bad. I, I try to evaluate things in terms of whether it's useful or not, whether it's helpful or not, whether it's correct or not, um, correct, not being morally correct, but just factually correct. And that's more helpful to me. I, I am I am someone with uh, I have I have had a very very long journey with my mental health, and one of the 
one of the biggest obstacles that I've struggled with is, is kind of deifying and vilifying people and things thinking like, this is horrible. This is wonderful. And when it's wonderful, I kind of get into a state of hyper devotion or even mania. And when it's terrible, I get into a state of, you know, just like catastrophe and, and helplessness. And those things are not, neither of those things are very useful to me. So I try to just avoid the good and bad uh, binary whenever possible. But say you've gone through a trauma yourself, right? And specifically at the hands of someone. And, and you've talked a lot about your own personal journey and how you, you speak uh, I almost want to say objectively to parts of yourself and have those conversations. You mentioned it in your TED talk. Can it help somebody get through a tough time though to vilify someone? Because I mean, it, it's easy for us to talk about it right now, but if it's happened to you, it's so hard to separate, to, to, to look at it very analytically. And I'm wondering, is there any validity to calling people, you know, like you see it, Hey, that person's a villain and they, they harmed me and it is what it is and I can't change it. Or do you really have to go deep in order to move on? I think that's a really beautiful question. And, um, and I'll tell you that what I believe is true and what hold, what, what truth holds up is not my ability to receive that truth has no bearing on whether it's true. And um, I can, I had to go through my own process and, and, and every single part of that process was important for me. Some parts of that process absolutely involved vilifying other people. And, you know, I'll say particularly in the case of, of, sexual assault, there's a very, for me, as a young woman, there's a very strong need to um, not to blame and shame myself. And so this kind of um, reaction to that would be, you know, and we've heard this a lot too, that, um, you know, no matter what she's wearing, it's not her fault. No matter if she wanted it and changed her mind, it's not her fault. No matter if, you know, no matter what, it's not her fault. It's not her fault. It's not her fault. It's not her fault. And, and that's true. You know, it's never, it's never anyone's fault if they are assaulted by someone else. However, that doesn't mean that that person who did that is evil. It also doesn't mean that the, the victim has no responsibility for their actions and it's not blame. It's, it's responsibility and perspective. So, you know, for me, it was very, very healing to say that person is, you know, blacklisted and there's nothing that I did wrong. And then later it was healing for me to say that person was having a really different experience and didn't communicate well with me and didn't consider my point of view, but that person is not evil. And it was also very healing for me to say, I can see where I made choices that didn't keep me safe. Um, and that, and that those things can all exist together. All of those multiple truths can exist together. So, I mean, I guess the answer to your question is whatever helps a person get through a difficult moment can be considered a tool. And that doesn't, all tools are not useful forever. I, um, 
I, I went through many periods of of self-destructive behavior. And I remember on one occasion, um, I hadn't been talking to my therapist about what I was doing. Um, in this particular case, I had been self-mutilating. And, and when I finally told her, she asked me, why didn't I tell her? And I said, um, I was just ashamed of it. And she said to me, never be ashamed of what you do to survive. Um, and then I, she probably followed up with also stop doing that. But, but, uh, but there was, you know, and so, and that really stuck with me because I realized that there was a time that I really needed to be the blameless victim. And there was a time when I realized that that mindset of blameless victimhood was disempowering to me and took my power away. And that in order to get my power back, I had to also take responsibility for my part of it. And I had to see that other person's part of it. So you took a crucial step in getting professional help, but say you're living with that and you're not seeing a professional, how do you start that conversation with yourself? The conversation with yourself has to start with that unconditional welcome because the way that you get through this with yourself, if you don't have a professional to guide you, is to be honest with yourself, like deep, 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 deep honesty. When I do this practice with myself, I really sit with myself and listen. And I ask myself, um, what do you need me to know? And I listen. And sometimes some parts of myself say some things to me that are pretty gnarly. Sometimes they say things to me like, you're worthless. And I have to go, okay, is that true? Um, and then they're like, mm, okay, not entirely. I'm like, okay, why are you telling me that? What is it that you want me to know? And then we have to kind of get under it. Or they'll say something to me like, you did have some amount of responsibility for this bad thing that happened. And I could also be like kind of unwilling to receive that. Like, no, 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 no. But if I have the love, if I have the self-love, if I have, if I'm practicing and cultivating unconditional welcome of all of my parts, then I don't have to be afraid of receiving that. And that's what's going to give me the strength to be able to say, okay, how much responsibility did I have? Or what was I responsible for? Or does that mean that it was my fault? And then we can have a dialogue. And that's how I've learned that I did have some responsibility, but some of the behaviors that I was doing, I didn't know any better. Some of them I did, but I wanted one thing, but I didn't know it was going to mean another thing or whatever it was. But I mean, all these things are really, really complex, but we can only dive into them safely when there's this very, very solid foundation and like extra bubble wrap of unconditional love around it. Well, the, the part, the self-commentary the, the part that I think is so hard to do is when you have a thought to go, is that true? Yeah. Because so many of us, the, the monologue in our head is the monologue. There's not separate voices. You haven't differentiated parts of yourself. Yeah. Is that the first step really to understand, to separate the different parts of your being then to have that real, true, honest conversation? Yeah. Um, well, well you're, you've, you've asked me what the first step is. And I think- the first step is whatever step you're on. Um, because the other thing I've noticed about this practice is that um, I don't know of a like a, a, an order of operations that works for everybody. Um, shame was my entry point because it was a thing that I was dealing with. I think for some people, um, they might have other entry points to it. Um, recognizing that you have conflicting feelings about something and understanding that those those can be separated parts that could be in dialogue with each other, that is a really good entry point um, if that's available to you. For some people, that's not something that 
they can really perceive with any kind of distinction, but um, for a while or maybe ever, but, but that, do you know um, the work of Byron Katie? I don't. Okay. Well, she's, you know how some people occasionally make something that is so good and simple. You are mad that you didn't make it yourself. Um, Oh yeah. I, she, she has a really wonderful process. It's four questions. Her entire, her entire methodology is four questions that you ask yourself. And it's so, it's really beautiful and really valuable. And I'm just, um, it's so simple, but it starts with, is that true? The second question is, can you be absolutely certain that it's true? And then the third question is, um, or the third thing you, you say, you turn the statement around in some kind of opposite way and ask yourself if the opposite of it is also true. For example, um, you know, he hurt me. Is that true? Yes. Can I be absolutely certain that it's true? And I'm like, well, I, I think so. Yes, but maybe I can't be absolutely, you know, I don't know. But you know, And then we say, okay, what about I hurt him? Is that also true? Oh yeah, that's also true. How about he didn't hurt me? Is that also true? Uh, that's also true a little bit. How about, you know, um, I hurt myself. That is also true, you know, and so then she kind of allows a person to, to flip this script on itself and recognize that there are many, many, many different perspectives of this one thing. And then the fourth question is, who would I be if I didn't believe this thought? Interesting. And then it's like, you know, it's amazing. The last question caught me off guard. Who would I be if I didn't have this thought? You mean, where would I be in my life or where would I be in a mental state? Or can you elaborate on that one a little bit? Well, I don't, I mean, I, I mean, she, she'd do a better job than I would, but I think the, I think the point of the question is just to allow yourself to imagine the possibility available to you. If you weren't held down by believing this one thing, Ah, okay. you know, it's like, if I let go of this, what is then available to me? It sounds like the goal of these four questions is self-awareness. I think the goal of the four questions is to let go of the stories that we tell ourselves. We believing our own stories is very destructive. And this is also related to the political conversation we were having that when we believe that our perspective is true, it cuts us off from other people. It cuts us off from the whole truth. It cuts us off from the deep honesty of knowing and accepting those parts of ourselves that don't align with that. And we, we kind of end up performing an idea that has no foundation in reality or has little foundation in reality. But so it's very important to be able to challenge our interpretations of our experience as interpretations and not the truth. I think empathy is often misunderstood though, because I think a lot of times we misinterpret empathy with sympathy and we use them as synonyms. And, you know, we were talking politics earlier and there's a quote um, Hillary Clinton had in 2015 and she got ripped apart for, and I wanted to read it because I think it highlights how we misunderstand empathy. She said, uh, we should show respect even for one's enemies trying to understand and as psychologically possible empathize with their perspective and point of view. And people tore her apart. And I thought people are idiots because saying that you empathize with someone, even who's bad, like we've just talked about, doesn't mean you agree with them or you sympathize with what they're doing. It's so different, but we have such a hard time today separating the two. 
is this just are we using them incorrectly just in our everyday vernacular? Is that the problem here? Well, I, um, from what I can tell, I don't know the context of what Hillary was talking about, but I, I, I am aligned with her use of empathy in this, in this quote. Um, I think the fact that people tore, tore her apart about it, um, is due to many things, (laughs) but, um, people love to tear people apart, especially if those people are Hillary Clinton, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I, a couple of weeks ago, I was doing um, an empathy training for for a staff orientation for a group of people, and we were talking about the concept of non judgment, and um, and one of the members of the staff, a wonderful person, really really wonderful person, said, um, "I you know I can't totally get behind this because there are things that I will not budge on. There are things that I absolutely believe are wrong, and I will not, I will not compromise, and I will not." She, she was, well, my interpretation is she was afraid of even finding a shred of, of value in the other point of view, because she felt so strongly that these things must change and must stop. And, and we talked about it as a group and, um, and many of her colleagues said, you know, this, her strength and her resolve and her kind of activist spirit is one of the best things about her. And we love her for that. Um, and I think again, like I was saying, that you know, whatever tool is you're using is the tool that you need. Um, I I think that there is absolutely a place for those that that mindset. There's absolutely a place to say, I am focused on a singular thing, and I am not going to let anyone influence me. Um, that energy has a place, um, but I, for me, I feel like those whenever we're moving forward with our blinders on um we can only go so far i guess and i think it really speaks to the fact that empathy scares a lot of people it's viewed as a weakness i think is what i got from people backlashing her because she's talking about having empathy for people who hate you right ideologically disagree with the united states in this case and but we view empathy sometimes as, you know, something that makes you weak. And I think that's why sometimes a lot of men have trouble with expressing high levels of empathy or just yeah. empathy in general. And I, I've worked with a lot of people who do not have much empathy. <laughs> how do you acquire, how do you acquire it? Or maybe better, if you're around someone who does not have much of it, is there any hope for them? Can you like inception them and place little nuggets in their brain to get them to be better at it? Or, I mean, is it possible? I can't get anybody to do anything. But um, do you know the marvelous trans artist, Alok Minan? I don't. I might not be pronouncing their name correctly, but I would strongly recommend you following their social media account because this person, um, you know, dresses very, very um, colorfully in a non-binary way and receives tons of hate on the internet, but they respond to the hate with total love. And every time is just like, I hear you, but it sounds like you really hate yourself. And I wish for you to have the peace to be able to receive other people. It's like this like extreme compassion. And it's so beautiful to watch. 
I just, I love to witness it just to kind of, I mean, it's very edifying for me. Um, you know, we've, we've heard of ignoring the haters or shutting out the haters, but this person is like, um, come on in, let's talk. You're not mad at me. You're mad at something else, you know? And it's like this extraordinarily transformative practice of, of, I mean, I think it's compassion, um, but, but all these words kind of get tangled up. So sympathy, I feel like sympathy for me is too closely related to pity to be very useful or desirable. Um, but you know, what you're talking about with folks believing that empathy is, is really soft or synonymous with agreement. I think that's another thing that people think if I empathize with you, it means that I agree with you and, and I can't possibly agree with that. And it's like, well, I mean, I don't agree with it, but, but at least I can see it and I don't have to harbor so much resentment. I mean, you know, I really kind of want to tell, um, I want to tell you a story that's pretty intense. I don't know what your listeners are up for, but, um, I'm just asking myself whether it's okay to talk about this. Okay. <laughs> I think take it your is. Time. I think it is. Okay. Um, I think it's really important. So when I was a very little girl, my I lived on the campus of a home for troubled teens. It was my father was a pastor and it was his ministry to um to kind of house and rehabilitate teenage boys who'd kind of been in the juvenile um, legal system um, who had very often gotten in trouble or been abused themselves. And um, I don't actually understand the mechanics of how it worked, but I know that there was this kind of dormitory and a little house and a little chapel where we all lived. And I kind of grew up with these um, teenage boys who were, who were all themselves troubled. And um, one of them was sexually abusive to me from a very young age, from when I was three years old. And I have very distinct memories of this. And, um, you know, long story of processing, but over many, many years, you know, as I learned what happened and I learned to define it, you know, I didn't even know that it was sexual abuse when I was little. I just knew that I was having a strange experience with this person, but I knew it was unusual but I didn't necessarily know how to regard it. But when I learned how to regard it, you know, when I started going to school and they were teaching us about how to be careful with, you know, and I thought, oh, this terrible thing that they're trying to prevent from happening has already happened to me. And, and I, and I hated that boy. I hated that boy so much. And I thought he was the worst person in the world, but also I was so little that I thought he was a grown up. And I didn't learn because he was taller. When I was 22, I was visiting my father's mother and she showed me a like a movie, like a Super 8 film of the boys home. And and you know, she was kind of, you know, and all the boys were in the and she asked me, "Do you do you remember any of those boys? And I was like, not really, only that one. And she was like, huh, what do you remember about him? And I was like, I don't know, but honestly, you know, the only memories I have are of this kind of awful thing that had happened. And she's, you know, she said, 
I'm sorry, this is too much detail, but she told me, you know, she knew about that. And I didn't even know that my family knew, which was another level of rage. But, but in any case, I, he was the tallest boy in the group. And, and I realized how very tall he was. And I was like, oh, I've been hating this man who hurt me. And now I realize he was um, just a tall teenager. And, and my grandmother even told me he was 15. And, um, and it was just a, it was a mindset shift of realizing that he was a child, you know, and, and I was a child and that, and that kind of helped me just process like, he wasn't like an evil man strategizing to hurt a child and ruin her life, you know? And then that was one step. Years later, about two years ago, I was, um, I'm kind of right. I've been writing a book about a lot of the things that happened back then. And I decided to do a little research. And so I researched this place. It was called happy landings, um, in central Florida. And I, and I, it was hard for me to find information about it online because it doesn't exist anymore. But, um, but I ended up finding several newspaper, newspaper articles, um, documenting that my parents were reported for abuse of these boys and, and that they, the boys had been trying to get help because my parents were physically abusing them. And, um, this was very believable because they, um, you know, I, I lived with my parents and I know what kinds of things they did. Um, but I had this transformative experience of realizing that this, he wasn't just a child. He was also being abused and, and, and that he was only at the foster home because he'd been abused before. And that, and that then, and, and also in reading these articles, I realized that this wasn't just a, like a, this wasn't like a, a government sinner that my parents were the foster parents. This boy was my brother. Oh my God. He was my, I didn't know that. Legally, he was my foster brother, and we shared an abuser. And he was also just a hurt kid. And what he did with me was because he had no boundaries and because he was, he, his mechanisms didn't work right inside and because he was probably just a curious teenager. And, and you know, I even have memories of saying ouch to him and him saying, oh, sorry, like he didn't want to hurt me. He wasn't a bad person. He was just a hurt kid. And and this this totally changed my life, Joe, because I realized that I had been regarding this incident as this horrible, sinister, destructive, violent incident. And and I realized that what it really was um was so much more complex than that. And that this boy had absolutely no malice toward me. And that and that we were actually both enduring a difficult situation. And that does not excuse what he did. And it certainly doesn't change the impact that it's had on my life, which has been extraordinary. But I no longer hate him. Wow. How many years after that experience did you start the healing process and then get to the Karen that I'm talking to now where you can have, where you can separate these parts of yourself and, and really have those conversations 
and like you said, not hate him. When did that start? I mean, well, the healing process for me feels like it's, it's been the whole time, you know, I, you know, because the healing process first is just surviving it. And so that starts immediately. (laughs) And then, and then as you, you know, the survival mechanisms are often involve a lot of destructive behaviors. I got in a lot of trouble and, and created a lot of chaos in my own life in an effort to survive for many years. And I, you know, I started therapy um, younger than most. I, I left home when I was 15 because of said um, parental situation. And, um, and, you know, and I, I went to college early. That was a, a very lucky thing that was available to me. And, um, and so I started therapy while I was, you know, when I was 15, when I, at the college, you know, health center. And so, you know, there's a way that I could say my healing started then, but I mean, there have just been so, so, so many different branches on the journey. Uh, but I can tell you that, you know, the day that I discovered that my abuser was my brother, not just legally, but spiritually and emotionally, um, was 40 years after it happened. And, um, I feel, I feel completely free of that burden with him. I don't feel confused about it. I don't feel ashamed of it. I don't feel I am, you know, that doesn't erase the consequences. That doesn't erase the, 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 the impact of it in my life. But I do, I do, I no longer feel like that thing um, has its claws in me. Now, I don't have that same level of freedom with all of the abuses in my life. Um, I'm working on it. So, you know, I, I don't think that the healing journey is one that has a finishing point. But I will tell you that the moment that I was able to release my hatred and resentment toward him um, was a very big moment for me. Oh, I can imagine. And it would it would seem like where you're at with this particular individual is really the end goal for anyone who's suffered a major trauma, which is I I recognize what it is and I'm able to live my life. And however you need to have those conversations, you you can. But it would really seem to someone that, Karen, this method that you've kind of created can really facilitate someone to move past something like that, which so many people have gone through something either similar or different, but as equally painful. And so, yeah, I, I guess at what point did you have the thought, I don't hate you anymore? I mean, immediately. I mean, well, the, the day that I, that I read those, I mean, I was, when I found the first article, then I was just you know, ravenous to find more. And I found about five or six articles about the boys home. And as I kind of put the pieces together and what's interesting for me is that I've done a lot of different kinds of work, emotional work, you know, body work, physical work, spiritual stuff. I've done so many different kinds of things. And what ended up kind of, you know, being the tipping point was knowledge. (laughs) It was literally knowledge. It was just like, don't though, I do think that that was that was only available to me because I had done all of those other different kinds of therapy. I think that 
you know, it, I can't say that the one thing would have worked by itself. I don't think reading those articles would have been, had the same impact if I had done it 20 years earlier. I think I, I did have to go through quite a lot of of excavating, you know, how this has impacted my life in every way. But but when I realized, I mean, it was the knowledge. It was just knowledge, like, you know, and, and I think that the newspaper articles themselves, like just the factualness of it, you know, um, not that everything in the paper is true anymore, but, sure. <laughs> but I think What's it a used to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. But but just, you know, seeing it in print, like this place existed. These things happened. People knew about it. You know, like folks spoke out about it. Decisions were made. You know, my parents eventually lost the boys' home because of this. Um, that that was real. And I mean, there's another... Well, there there are many more layers of the story that I don't I don't think we have time for. But 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 just like understanding that the validation of 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 the facts, and then just like putting those things together, painting the picture for myself, and realizing that this boy had absolutely no tools or skills to deal with what he had already been through, and the people who had signed up to help him were hurting him. And I was probably the least threatening person, you know, <laughs> I was a little three-year-old girl. And um, I mean, not, I don't want to start uh, making excuses for the choices that he made. I don't want it to sound like that that was like a natural and okay thing that he did. But, but I just like, it just was a, such a different scenario than, this terrible person doing this terrible thing, you know? And so the, the empathy that you teach to corporations now, you'll, you'll come in and talk about these different types of empathy. There's the one-to-one -one correlation, right? This is the same empathy that you're talking about to have these, you know, conversations with yourself. It's the same ones that, you know, you can use throughout your whole life, right? There's no difference. There's three types of empathy and you can yeah. leverage it for any situation. Absolutely any situation. What's interesting is that, yeah, corporate empathy and one-on-one -on -one empathy are not different at all in practice. It's, um, I think that in, in, at the workplace, we have more conversations around boundaries because, I mean, boundaries are important personally too, but in the workplace, it's kind of like, you know, I do want to care about you, but like the story I just told you would not be appropriate to tell in the workplace. And, <laughs> And for a number of reasons, um, one of which being that it's it is emotionally triggering to hear about something like that, and it and it puts quite a burden on the listener to receive it well, and that that's just um, a lot to ask when we have a job to do. It's not that it's shameful. It's not that it's overshare. It's not that it's you know. It's just that like the workplace is a place where we're doing work, and yes, we are people. And we, and we should feel um, safe to be who we are. However, our coworkers are not our therapists, and they're not our partners. And so, and so, it's like in the workplace, we just talk about how, you know, listening and caring for someone um, is as important as defining the boundaries for that experience, because that connection does need to be boundaried at work. However, and what's interesting is that this practice also extends um, to 
brands and consumers. So, you know, you and I have one-on-one empathy and maybe at work I have, you know, my one-on-one empathy with my coworkers, but then there's also like a brand consumer empathy where, so then it's a kind of like, I hate saying scalability, but because I also have a whole thing about empathy not being really scalable, that one-on-one empathy is not scalable. But empathy, practicing empathy for groups of people, which is what I kind of teach brands to do, is the same thing. We're going to do the same practice. We're going to look at feelings, facts, and context. We're going to understand our audiences. What do they fear, believe, and value? What is their climate? What is their weather? Like all the things that I like to talk about in the one-on-one apply so that the brand is actually also taking that time to listen and deeply connect with consumers. And, um, and that's, you know, what ethnography is. That's where ethnography comes in as a practice of empathy, where as an ethnographer, my job is to go and be the listening ear um, with customers. So you're walking a mile in their shoes, or is it wrong to think of like a, a fly on the wall and you're analyzing people in their own environment? Is Because you said one time um, you've gone on dates with people as an ethnographer. Well, I attended their dates with other people. Yeah, sorry, I misspoke. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't a three-way date. It was <laughs> you were on the sidelines observing. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's um, you know, and it's that's a funny that's a funny scenario because what's what's really interesting about empathy, I mean, about ethnography, is that as everyone knows and physics has proven, observing something changes the thing that you're observing, right? And and that is extremely. Uh, evident in a date situation. So imagine. like that third person watching is definitely like, you know, and they're really, and they're, I think, I think everyone should try to do ethnography practices because it's so, it's so instructive for me to just be hyper aware of my presence and just like, how close should I stand to them? At what point do I start to impact their experience in a major way? When can they no longer ignore me? Or or like, am I, you know, do I seem natural? Am I easy to be with? Is this a comfortable conversation? Am I encouraging them to be honest? Or am I sharing too much of my own bias? You know, like this, it's a, the self-awareness practice for ethnographers is really wonderful. And it's actually, I don't know if you know this, but this is what sparked the empathy training curriculum that I have now is that um, I had about 10 years ago, my first intern who I was teaching ethnography to had um, a, a really gnarly case of ADHD. And, um, and he had a, you know, and I, I realized that I was like, I can't just teach him how to design a research process and give him a list of, I need to teach him how to sit still and listen. I need to teach him how to be quiet. I need to teach him how to, like, I just like all these things. I need to teach him how to direct his attention in a particular place, how to observe something, um, you know. And and so I developed these sort of exercises and tools to help Darren, my first intern. Um, and we had a wonderful time. It was really, really great. But what I learned was I kind of inadvertently created an empathy training program um, by just, you know, getting to the fundamentals of how do I let someone be who they are and how do I make sure that I'm not impeding on that? You know? Um, yeah. So that's, it was, it was great. As an ethnographer, where do you draw the line? As I was preparing to talk to you, I thought of where else am I being observed for, you know, 
other purposes. And I immediately reached for my phone, right? And it's it's frightening the amount of information that's collected on us on a daily basis. What's the line? Uh, you know, you're a human being, so it's pretty easy for you to tell, hey, I'm intruding or I'm not. But for corporations who want to learn about their consumers, I mean, where do we draw the line? It, it feels like there is none anymore. You're talking about privacy, right? You're talking about where you draw the line ethically with invading someone's privacy? Essentially, because isn't both where you're trying to gain you're trying to gain information about a consumer. Yeah. Whereas if I see Karen in the kitchen, I'm not really that put off because I understand you're there. But if I'm like the other day, I was watching a TV show and a very specific candle holder that had a bunch of creepy arms coming out of it was referenced. And then on YouTube, there was an ad that you could buy this candle holder. So my concern is where do we draw the line between, you know, what information we're supposed to be picking up from people and when is privacy being overrun, I guess. Is that a topic in ethnography right now at all? Um, okay. I think that it is absolutely a topic. Um, it's, it's not a topic right now, like more so than it's always been because it's always been a factor. Ethnography, you know, we are, we are creeping on people. So, so there's a, but there, but the conversation is ongoing is what I mean. Like the ethics of the ethics of how, how much or little do we share with them? So for example, you know, we are not allowed to collect surveillance footage from like security cameras um, because nobody on those cameras agreed for that information to be used. Um, it makes me sad because I would really love to have that footage because that is behavior that is, you know, quote unquote, real or authentic because I'm not there messing with it. Um, but I can't do that. So, so then, you know, there's, so, and also there are a couple of different styles of observation. Um, you mentioned fly on the wall, which is kind of one of them. Um, another one I call secret agent and then there's ride along and stunt double. So fly oh, on the cool. wall. Yeah. It's like, it's a two by two. I wish I could show you this slide. It's like a two by two where, um, you know, the X axis is like passive or active and the Y axis is open or secret. So in the like secret passive, that's fly on the wall. So I'm observing the subject without interfering, interfering or disclosing that I am watching. That's like people watching at the mall, which you're allowed to do because it's public. Um, but it can get creepy, for example, if you're trying to get surveillance footage and then there's passive open, which is the ride along. So this is where like the researcher is witnessing or accompanying the situation in close proximity. So they know I'm there, but I'm not being a part of it at all. This is like, like auditing a class. Um, then there's like secret active, which is the secret agent one. And that's where I'm, um, I'm performing the role that I'm studying without revealing that I'm doing research. This is like undercover boss oh. where I am getting in there to learn about it, but nobody knows that I'm a researcher. And that's one where it can get ethically weird. I mean, obviously, and, you, and that's always like, you've got to really draw the lines carefully. And then the other one is um, the open and active one, which is stunt double. So that's where the researcher is actively participating in the situation that I am studying in order to gain firsthand experience. And so that's kind of more like the show wife swap, where it's not a secret, but I am actually trying on the life of another person. 
So I might actually, if I want to, in a very small way, like I was doing this furniture study one time. And so I would actually sit at people's desks. I would, I would watch them sitting at their desk, but I would also myself sit in their chair so that I could see what they were seeing. So there are just, you know, there are levels of participation of like gathering this information on the other person's experience. Um, the question that I, 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 I would anticipate that you might go to next is, is, um, once you have, you know, decided this is the ethical space that I feel like is okay, well, then it's like, well, what do I do about the fact that I'm, how do I adjust for the distortion that I'm causing by being there? And this is a, this is a nerd fight that I have had with many other researchers um, because to my knowledge, and there are a lot of people that may disagree with me, it is very it was damn near impossible to completely adjust for that because of the like limitless subjectivity and limitless areas of potential impact, even just that I might not be aware of. So the way I adjust for it is that I develop a very deep and detailed self-knowledge so that I know how people tend to respond to me. And so oh, like your baseline, my baseline, but I also, I know that, um, so for example, if I am a person, let's say, oh gosh, I'm trying to come up with an example that doesn't sound horrible, but like, if I'm a person who, who dresses super flamboyantly, it's not the right, like very dramatic. If I, if I dress like Lady Gaga all the time, then I'm going to know that People take pictures of me. That's something that they do. So if I'm in a research situation and people start taking pictures of me, I know that's because of me. That's not because they like taking pictures. That's because I look like this, <laughs> you know, like that's an extreme example. Shouldn't you change your dress then though to fit in? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm exaggerating the okay. example just to prove a point, but I'm just saying that when I get to know myself really well, then I can start to see that some of the patterns I'm observing are because of me um, because I know who I am and I know how people tend to respond to me. Um, and some ways to adjust to that is also to have another researcher do the same thing and see if they get similar stuff. Um, but there's also there's, you know, what I'm interpreting and like it, it goes a long way. And the other thing is, yeah, actually to try to make myself as neutral as I can be. And this is another impossible task that I encourage everyone to try. I legitimately, literally tried to make myself invisible as a person by um, dressing in a super boring way, having a very common look, wearing quiet shoes so that no one hears me coming. You know, I just tried to be ignorable. I tried to be, but still pleasant enough that folks wanted to talk to me, you know, and, you know, it was like this very, very delicate balance. Now, what's interesting about that is that I am not neutral. And I don't just mean like me, Karen Faith as a person. I just mean like, by virtue of the fact that I have this body, I look like this. People have opinions about me no matter what. People have responses to me no matter what. If I, if I looked differently in the same clothes or what, you know, like there's only so much I can do. I am still a full human person all the time. So knowing that helps me to know that, you know, 
there are some situations that I will never be invisible in. And, you know, in some cases in ethnography, I would probably try to send someone who was a little bit more capable of being invisible in that situation. But when I can't, I just have to say, okay, well, um, I'm going to do my best. (laughs) Sure. And I imagine there's a large responsibility on an ethnographer to document your findings objectively and not put any inherent bias into them, especially if you're researching like a, a group of people. Yeah, and the and the bias thing is is another really deep topic because um you know facts are facts, but which facts I choose to observe is often the result of my bias. You know, which fact which facts I consider important. You know, when I ver- when I first started doing ethnography, um I tried to record every fact, even and especially if I didn't find it important because of that. And it makes note-taking um, extensive. It makes it take sure. many, many. I mean, it was like six hours of note-taking to one hour of observation. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's like very, it's a lot. Because, um, you know, and also to, you remember everything and you video document things and you collect whatever you can. And um, and it's kind of going through that and just being like, and, and it takes a while to just be, figure out like, was that coffee break important or not important? Okay. I don't know. You know, let's see. We have to look at. 10 more subjects before we know. Um, I mean, it's very interesting. The thing is that the, the practice, so the person who trained me, um, Dr. Thomas Lohr, he's in, he's in um, Germany and he's a, he's a legit PhD sociologist. Um, and he, he developed um, a practice that he calls objective hermeneutics, um, which he supposes if you practice it the way he is outlining it, will will create reproducible results no matter who does it. Now, um, I do not have the education to debate with him on that because um, I just, I don't have a PhD in sociology, (laughs) but um, we have had many conversations about it and I'm kind of like, yeah, but even if it's, I mean, come on, no way, like (laughs) no, no, no way could absolutely any person come to the same interpretations. Um, now I haven't, I don't, I don't, I, maybe he's right. I don't know. I personally think that, um, the variation in our interpretations is also interesting. So I don't always, when I present findings, um, I don't present them as facts. I don't present them as, you know, because also ethnography, because of the depth of it, the sample size is often really, really small. So, you know, even if I think I've gotten a wide range of subjects, um, it's usually only a handful of people. And so I, I can't, I can't possibly say that this is proven to be true. However, I just say like, these are interesting thought starters. This is a, these are intended to open doors of thought to ask more questions that then we can validate with other types of research. Um, Joe, I just want to pause and say, I feel like I'm going down a nerd hole with you and I don't know if this is where you want us to go. This is definitely where I want to go. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to take us further. So what you're saying is the next time I go to the mall, I could be observed. I could be being observed the whole time or, or a subset of that. Now, clearly when you went on a date with those people, you told them it was happening and you, you know, clearly got permission, but out in public, like you said, if you're in a public space, you know, fair game for you to be observed, right? People Mm -hmm. watch and people can take notes. Okay. 
that's that's interesting because I think most people would be like, no, that's not allowed, but you're just, you're in public. So you can, I mean, you can take photographs, you can do whatever, right? Yeah. Let me, uh, I want to, I'll tell you, I'll tell you about a really deep study that I did one time. Um, I, so I had this, I had this breakthrough in the research once upon realizing that watching, I could see a lot when I watched something, someone do a habitual task something that they've done a hundred thousand times, I could see more of their problem solving methodology, how their mind works. I could see more, I could see more about them when I watched them doing something habitual. And so I got this idea that I wanted to watch people in their morning routine before work, because I thought I'll, I'll be able to see more about how they are and who they are and what matters to them by looking at what are the, like, I mean, very first thing, like I watched people get out of bed. Really? Um, yeah. In in a couple of cases, they were able to get their roommate to let me in before they woke up and I watched them wake up. It was so creepy. Oh my gosh. But, cool. Um, but yeah, and creepy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's super creepy. Um, I, I really like it. But uh, in order to do this, so so we've talked a lot about how a researcher can prepare themselves to be a kind of neutral observer, but I also realized I needed to teach the research subject how to, quote unquote, be natural. So we actually held a workshop to kind of prepare and train is too strong a word, but to prepare subjects for the experience of being observed so that they because a lot of what happens when I go into um, an ethnographic observation, the first 30 to 40 minutes is spent with me explaining to them what we're going to do and how it works and making sure they're comfortable with me, letting them know I want them to be honest, letting them know, you know, all these things like um, kind of letting, getting them comfortable and letting them know what to expect so that they can relax. But I realized that if I'm going to, if people are waking up, and I'm trying to observe the first thing they do, I can't have that conversation with them, right? So we needed, I needed to have the conversation beforehand, but I also needed to make sure that people felt really at ease um, and that they, they felt comfortable with me and that they, you know, they, were, they felt safe and that it wasn't gonna be traumatic for them to, to have someone observe you know, their kind of intimate moments. And, um, and so I kind of taught them how to ignore me. And also I taught them how to witness themselves. So um, self-witnessing is a practice that is essential for the researcher when they're, especially when they're doing the participation. That style is called participant observation. It's like says exactly what it is, which is, you know, to participate while observing. And it's, it's so, it's so beautiful. It's such a deep practice. It actually has a lot of resonance with many different spiritual teachings in Buddhism and in, in Hinduism in yoga in Christianity. There are a lot of teachings about being in Christianity. Uh, it, there's uh, it's called being in the world, but not of the world that we participate in the world while knowing that our true citizenship is spiritual. And then there's like a, um, you know, Buddhist practices of, of witnessing uh, while like kind of distancing and taking the mindset of the witness while pr present in one's life, not just while meditating, but while doing things with people. And so this practice of kind of contacting 
this part of the consciousness that can witness the experience and maintain an, an almost external point of view while engaged with the, another person or engaged in your life. This is, a, um, this is also one of the foundational practices of the kind of parts work that we talked about of, of dialoguing with the self from that point of view of the witness. So I teach researchers how to self-witness so that they can participate and observe. But then I realized I need to teach the subjects how to do it too, because I need them to narrate to me what their thoughts are while they do their morning routine. And that is not something that most people do. <laughs> yes. So I needed to teach them how to go like, I'm waking up. I'm not really feeling like waking up right now, but I know I have a lot to do today. Um, I'm wondering if I took the trash out last night. I am trying to calculate how much time it'll take to do my hair. Uh, you know, just like while having the thoughts, narrating the thoughts, you know? Interesting. So how do you think then technology will change the study of ethnography? Because I mean, if you could just tap into their brain and know what they were thinking, they wouldn't have to say it. And if you could be like a little mini drone and follow them around in their morning, you wouldn't have to physically be there. Do you think- Yeah. The- and also- it- No, keep going. If people were able to witness themselves and know themselves and be honest with themselves, we wouldn't need researchers at all because we could just ask them. Boom. I mean, that's this is the weird, dark premise of observational research or, or quali- market research in general is that people don't know themselves or people can't be honest. Like this, people say it different ways. But the idea that um, that a researcher can see more about a person than that person can see about themselves is it's it's a bit insulting actually, but it's also based in fact because a lot of people are not in touch with themselves. Most people do not know why they do what they do. They do not know what they fear, believe, and value. And that it kind of takes someone outside to say, this is what I see. These are the choices I see you making. Um, would you say that this aligns with this kind of value? And some people are like, no, because they have a self-concept which is completely out of alignment with the way that they're living. And and most people have that, myself included. I mean, just the fact that I, you know, I'll tell you really vulnerably, this is, this is actually le- legitimately painful for me. But a friend of mine once told me, you know, you think you're a nice person, but you're actually not a very nice person. <laughs> and, and it hurt me because he was mad at me at the time. But, but I realized that I do really think I'm a nice person and I am not always a nice person. And that's, that's a small and simple example, but there are so many things that I think about myself that I am very sure are not shared by the people in my life. And everyone is that way. So I guess to bring it all back together, being able to remove biases, have open and I almost use the word jaded, but uh, you know, open conversations with yourself and other people really seems to be a at the heart of ethnography to be able to objectively look at participants, and b as as I wrote it down a few times here to have self empathy to be able to mm-hmm. look within and have those conversations. So, Karen, for anybody who wants to know uh, more about what you're teaching or resources to facilitate them on their empathy journey, how can folks get a hold of either you or the work that you do? Um, Othersunlimited.com is a great place to learn more about the work that I do in empathy and ethnography. Um, 
or you can email me, Karen at othersunlimited.com. Um, we have a social media account that I'm not sure I know why we have, but we do have one. We're on Instagram and uh, LinkedIn and all that. But uh, who cares? Who cares? And you're going to have a book coming out soon. Uh, soon is not a word that I would use, but um, eventually. But there is <laughs> one day. Um, there is a book. You know, <laughs> there is a there is a book that's being written. Fair enough. Well said. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much, Karen, for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me.